Hello and welcome to Close Reads, the Q&A episode for Walker Percy's 1961 National Book Award winner, The Movie Goer. I am Tim McIntosh. And I am Heidi White. And dear listener, we are so glad that you joined us for this question and answer episode. <laughs> um, Heidi, can I point out a few things about this week's or this, this um, book's questions? A couple of changes, I think, in our normal Q&A. Demographic? Um, maybe the demographic, yeah. So two changes that I noticed. More men commenting on this book and asking questions mm-hmm. about the, this book. Than I noticed that too. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to say the questions are a little bit more prolix than in previous. I don't occasions. know what that means. What it, does that they're mean? They're just, the questions are kind of, they're a little bit long. Oh, I mean, it's not, it's not a, yeah. it just people like, I think because the book is full of such subtleties um, the questions kind of mirrored the subtleties of the book. So mm. um, maybe I'm just imagining it, but it seemed like a lot of these questions, the questions are going to take up, just to get the questions on the table is going to take a little time. So we're asking our listeners now, like, bear with us, because I don't want to shortchange the people who pose the question. I want to make sure that the kind of like subtlety of their question is is present when we what ask. What was that them. word you used? Prolix. Prolix. What, how do you spell that? How do you know that word? Pro- I don't know that word. P-R-O-L-I-X. Okay, you know what? I'm going to tell you right now. I believe you. I believe I'm it's a word. It's it just up. one I don't know. This I have exciting. been known to, on occasion, um, use a word thinking that I know it and then kind of backtrack. And that would say, be awesome. No, you're okay. right. Using or containing many words, lengthy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay Prolix. I am so glad I learned something new today. Thank you so much, Tim McIntosh. It's a nice word too, isn't it? It is. I'm, I'm thrilled about this. This is so great. Okay, I hope so I learned Heidi, more from um, you, Tim, today. I'm excited. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm, I think yeah. I have a feeling I'm going to pick up a couple of your vocabulary words <laughs> during this episode. Um, so t- in today's Q&A episode, I'm going to give a little preface to what we're going to discuss. First question that we're going to discuss is whether the phrase, there was a lot of chatter about a phrase that no one seems to have heard of on page 215 of my edition of the book. The phrase is high in the hip. Is the, is, is the phrase high in the hip some sort of innuendo? We will also receive from one of our uh, listeners an invitation to physical combat, Heidi. What? Yes. I accept. <laughs> we Is will it discuss. To the death? Uh, it's not to the death. At least that's not what the the listener has proposed. Okay. Maybe in his mind he has proposed. He just didn't oh, articulate. is it Brandon? Is that? It's not it? Brandon. It's not. No, Brandon. it's not. I don't know what Brandon. you're talking about, but I accept. Okay. Okay. Uh, we'll also discuss. Um, the racism in Walker Percy's moviegoer, whether or not there is racism in Walker Percy's moviegoer, whether or not the title moviegoer is misleading. Is the whole title of the book an inaccurate moniker for this book? And we will also conclude by helping a listener understand whether or not it's okay to have disparate views of this novel. That's how we're going to wrap up the show. It's a good list. Solid. I'm excited. 
first question, Heidi. This one comes from Brandon LeBlanc, one of our favorites, and also Hannah Stuckwich. Um, this is Brandon's wording, but Hannah kind of echoed it. What does the phrase high in the hip mean? Google was no help. And it feels like a phrase I want to use, but it also feels like a phrase that might be inappropriate to use. <laughs> I think Brandon is exactly right. It's like, oh, I'd really like to use that. I but. probably could get like slapped in the face if I used it in the wrong way to the wrong people. So let me read the phrase yeah. as it occurs in the book. Um, it occurs on page 215. Um, for a tenth of a second, he eyes me. So this is um, Banks talking to the romantic guy that he meets on the train, capital R romantic. I go over and ask him uh, how he likes his book. For a tenth of a second, he eyes me to make sure I am not a homosexual but he has already seen Kate with me and sees her now, lying asleep and marvelously high in the hip, period. Mm -hmm. And we don't get any more information about what that might mean, high in the hip. Any guess, Heidi? Did you do any Google research? I did not do any Google research. I relied on Brandon, um, who said that he could not find anything on Google, and he's usually trustworthy about these things. Um, I... As an aside, I found Brandon LeBlanc a bit salty in this particular uh, uh, Q&A thread. And so I liked it. I'm totally for it, but I noticed it. Um, I think it's either colloquialism, like some kind of slang term that we don't know about, or it's just referring to like, he already talks about, he talks about her um, posterior a few times mm-hmm. talks mm-hmm. about her being kind of wide in the hips <laughs> and having delicately said yes. her posterior, which uh, my flank. understanding, my uh-huh. understanding and that is that this is a common thing to notice for a man <laughs> towards a woman. So I am not a man, but I've heard uh-huh. rumors about uh-huh. this. So I'm, I thought it's either like a, a colloquial phrase, some kind of slang phrase that we just don't use anymore. Or he's just talking about she's lying on her side and her hip is like really high up and curvy. And, and it's something that the men are noticing. Could it also mean, is it, is it another way of saying she's long-legged? Perhaps, perhaps so. If a person is high in the hip, I'm taking this in a very literal way her hips, his hip, her, his hips are high from the ground, thus making that person long-legged, which is often like a way of describing feminine beauty. She's long-legged. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's my best bet. I I don't know either. Right. Well, now that our listeners know how ignorant we are, we are all in it together and we don't know, but I do urge you Please use this phrase in a sentence out in public. See what happens and then let us know. I was saying show discretion and you're like, don't show any discretion. I'm like, just go for it. Seize the Carpe Diem. It's like an experiment. Okay. I'm not going to do it. It's an experiment that you you can get away with it. Brandon cannot get away with that. I cannot get away with that. I mean, I thought he was a little salty. Maybe he deserves it. Maybe he deserves it. Yeah. Andy Taylor asks, he says, Jessica Hooten Wilson, in her book, Reading Walker Percy, argues that Banks's search intentionally follows Kierkegaard's stages of existence, aesthetic, ethical, religious. 
Do you agree? And if so, is this the path that all great searches follow? I'd like to interject here, Heidi, you and say- I did. And I you feel did. really good that yes. um, Jessica Hooten Wilson and I agree. I feel somewhat, uh, I, I didn't need to feel validated. It's nice to have like some backup there. Um, so let's focus on this. Her book is brilliant. I think anybody oh, who really? haven't read the whole thing. Yes. She's an incredible scholar and she has written about Dostoevsky, about Flannery O'Connor, uh, about Walker Percy. Um, and she just, I just reviewed a book that she co-edited uh, with another scholar on Solzhenitsyn and what he has to offer to American culture no today. Kidding. She's excellent. Anything she writes is definitely worth reading. Um, I have her Walker Percy book, but I haven't made my way through it all the way. Uh, but I would like to say, um, as I mean, she's solid, solid backup yeah. uh, to what to you for sure. And you did say that on the last on that exact. You made that exact point on the last podcast, and I thought it was brilliant. So that's great. Hooten Wilson, H-O-O-T-E-N hyphen Wilson. So um, Andy Taylor asks, if this is so, that that Bing's mm-hmm. kind of travels through these three stages, is this the path all great searches follow? I think you should take a stab at this first, Tim. So you, might, gonna... you might possibly have a thought or two on this <laughs> I question. I have a thought or two on this. Um, I'm going to go back to Kierkegaard. He says that one does not necessarily have to travel in order through these three different stages. In other words, um, an aesthetic person who is kind of like enjoys the great pleasures of life, of art, of physical existence, gambling on a weekend with one's friends. Um, One can leap over the ethical stage and go directly to the religious stage. Um. So I guess in that way, Kierkegaard would say to Andy Taylor, no, it doesn't necessarily have to go in that order. But there's this other question, like, do all the great paths necessarily conclude with the religious stage? That's another kind of question, a derivative question, I think, of what Andy's asking. Boy, boy, um, just since I first saw Andy's question, I kind of made a little list for myself of the books that I really love. Mm. And I think are like, these are like the really full flowering literature, literary efforts to kind of like describe, you know, the inner journey and outer journey. And almost all of them for me conclude with some sort of religious, um, and I want to qualify this, some sort of religious arrival. By saying that, I of course do not mean like these characters in these great books end up with some sort of a Christian conversion mm-hmm. or a right. kneeling and a taking of the Eucharist. I'm not suggesting that at all. But I do think even in kind of books that we might call, that are written by more secular writers that don't have a religious affiliation, I still tend to read their books, like really good books, is not just concluding with a character or character saying, you know what, I need to be an ethical person now. I really have kind of figured it out. I need to start living, doing my duty. There's something a little bit lacking for that. So, so my answer to Andy's question would be, I kind of think all great searches end with that kind of final stage of like some, like the, 
the questing being solved in some sort of, uh, what's the right way of saying it? Spiritual slash religious slash something superseding just the kind of human plane or just the ethical plane. So I'm going to say yes. Heidi, what do you think? Is this the path, aesthetic, ethical, religious, that all great searches follow? I'm with you. I think that, uh, you know, as you said, Kierkegaard makes the point that it's it's not necessarily a search of stages. Kind of like, do you remember when um, Elizabeth Kubler-Rosk in the 80s and that her great book on grief and the five stages of grief um, hmm. was like just on kind of every, the forefront of everybody's mind is one of the things people were talking about a lot uh, during those, that decade and the nineties too. And it continues today. Uh, and there was a, you know, a bunch of people kind of trying to figure out which stage they were in, right. Mm. Am I in the denial stage? Am I in the anger stage? Blah, blah, blah. And, and there was uh you know, a lot of caution from psychologists saying, you don't have to identify which stage we're in. This is, you know, it's a very messy thing to be a human. It's a very messy Mm. thing to walk through grief. And so it's not something you can check off a box and say, check, I've been through the anger stage. Check, I've been through the denial stage. Check, I've been through the bargaining stage. And now I'm arriving at acceptance, right? Like there's, um, but whenever humans get a system, we want to try to find ourselves in the system and we want to try to kind of like bend our humanity towards the system. Mm. Um, and, and I think that this, I think that's one of the, the um, dangers uh, with such labeling, right? Um, you know, am I in the aesthetic stage? Have I arrived at the, am I, you know, am I ready for transcendence? Whatever. I think it's, that's less helpful than it. Um, than it ought to be, <laughs> or I, I think it's more helpful to think of it in terms of um, we're all kind of on this journey, this pilgrimage to to mm-hmm. towards transcendence. And to your point, in a in a broken, fractured modern world, uh, in a world that in which the general culture, the zeitgeist, is rejecting the idea of transcendence and attempting to make. Uh, human existence kind of limiting it to the one story world the material plane i think the the more helpful point is let's all make sure we're on some kind of journey towards transcendence let's all let's all make sure that we're you know um that that that's where we're that's where where our loves and our affections are oriented um but I do think that all those things happen. What I'm really curious about is the people, and, and I'm not trying to derail the conversation um, because there are the moviegoers, the searchers, right? But then what about the people who just accept it, who are just like, not on a search, they just believe it. You know, the 98% that he talks about, which of course oh, is a much oh, smaller oh. percent. But the people who are like, I was just, I'm just, I, I, I am, you know, I like beautiful things and I like good things and I believe in God and I'm a Christian and I don't need to be on a search. Like, I'm always like wondering, is that legit or is that cheating? Like, should we all be on a search? That's really the question I feel like um, kind of was raised for me along these same lines. But do you think that Lonnie, that you just described Lonnie from the book, 
the the younger brother mm-hmm. of Banks. He yeah. meets him when visiting his mother. He and Sharon kind of went on this trip and they ended up at his mother's house. Is Lonnie one of those people who isn't on a journey? He's just arrived. He's arrived at his like deeply, profoundly held Catholicism. I think maybe that's one way of looking at Lonnie, but I would I would push back against people that I would push back against that interpretation of Lonnie with, but finding God isn't the end of the search, right? And in some ways, Mm. like Lewis tries to make this point in his, in his fiction, like finding God is the beginning of the journey and the, it's the beginning of the true search, right? Once you say like, I've had this profound conversion and I'm, I'm, I'm now on a pilgrimage to the kingdom of God, like that to me is the bigger adventure. And, and I think Lonnie's on that one, the adventure mm. of, of, you know, what he, what does he call it? His deeply held disposition, like the journey he's on this adventure to like confess his sins and, and, and overcome them. He's on a journey to holiness. He's now searching not for God in the sense of whether or not God is real, but once, once you know, God is real, that's the real adventure right? Because now you're Mm. going into the heart of something bigger than yourself and something eternal. And that's like unmappable. That's unplottable. That is, that's the search. And I, I think that's one of the main things that the modern world misses is like these, even, even the novelists, right? I love these novels. As you know, I love the novels, right? But to me, like, once you do believe in God, you're at the beginning of a better journey. And I, I'm interested in, you know, kind of novels that explore that, which are more rare. It's much more, it's much, it's much more common to find novels about people who are trying to find God, right? That's, and that's fine. That's a really good thing. But for, I'd love to read a novel about Lonnie. Yeah. The the story of his, like the story of a, Mm. of a boy of faith who suffered so greatly and is still wanting to confess his sins on his deathbed. That's a, that's a great adventure. Mm. That's a great search. Heidi, next question. Um, Walker Percy refers to Lonnie as a moviegoer. <laughs> Maybe I already answered this question. So. Yeah. Well, well, I don't know. And actually, I think the question kind of swerves. <laughs> no, um, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Thoughts on why Walker may have done this, given that, given the other moviegoers in the books. Um, And then a follow-up to that question is from Reed Taze Charles. Do you find the title a little bit misleading? Is the title, the moviegoer, a little bit misleading? It's a good question. All right, Tim, you tackle this I'm going to collapse those two questions into Reed's question. Do I find the title to be a little bit misleading? Yeah, I do. The book's not about a movie. Go- I mean, it's not about movie going, really. There's a, I have a little afterward um, by a guy who wrote a four-pipe biography of Percy O'Connor, uh, Dorothy Day, and Thomas Merton uh, called The Life You Save Might Be Your Own. Paul Ellie is his name. And he, in the afterward of The Moviegoer, he writes, The Moviegoer isn't really about movies. And yet the title remains unexpectedly apt. Paul Ellie. So I'm going to lean on my answer. I'm going to lean on Paul Ellie for my answer. 
he says that the, the highest, the, the time in American history when more movies were watched at cinemas was after World War II. It was kind of during the time of the writing of this book. And he thinks that the title of the moviegoer is less about a person, Banks, who actually goes to the cinema with great frequency, though he seems to go to the cinema with great frequency. It's more about a mode of being, moviegoing as a mode of being. And he says that, Paul Ellie says that the way to kind of think of the atmosphere of this book is to think about it as a moviegoing culture. It's sort of, um, gosh, movies are a, a way of kind of wrapping experience in a cellophane packaging in which uh, we kind of know what the answers are before we begin the movie. We know the good guy's going to get the girl. They're going to settle down in a the house. They're going to have a couple of kids. And there's not going to be any mention of malaise. There's not going to be any, like real contention with the real darkness and every, yeah, the darkness of everyday experience. That's not going to be what movie, like a movie goer does. That's not what the story that movies tell. Now, maybe we could say movies have kind of shifted and sometimes they actually try to broach those very difficult subjects in some ways. But Paul Ellie's point is the movie goer is not about a moviegoer, and yet the title is very, very accurate. I think that's a great observation. I think he's right. Yeah. How do you, what do you, how do you, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't think the title's misleading. I think the title's brilliant because what they're talking about, this was, this was long before, you know, Joseph Campbell and his idea of the master story that kind of took hold of the public imagination. Um, but I think that's what I, th- I think that's what Walker Percy is getting at. In movie going, the people who are moviegoers are are they are people who are on the search for some kind of like master story to provide a narrative to to uh, kind of speak meaning into uh, the everyday life, the everydayness, and um, his his problem with movie going at the beginning of the novel is that in attempting to speak into everydayness and provide some kind of greater meaning, the movies just end up settling, so to speak, I'm using air quotes here at the Mm -hmm. end for everydayness. And that's his problem with it. And, and if we are right in that at the end of the story, he, he experiences some kind of conversion to the idea of the transcendent, some kind of uh, experience uh, of the um, sacramental reality of the world. Uh, If he finds what he's looking for, um, then he has arrived at the end of the movie. And, and so to me, the title's like perfect Mm. that, this is a movie, this is a story, excuse me, this is a story about someone on the search for a greater transcendent meaning um, who thinks he's found the flaw. And then at the end, the flaw ends up being the solution. And I, I think that's like a brilliant metaphor, symbol uh, for, for the search, which is really what, what about, the book's about. The book's about the search, but right. movie going is a good symbol of that. What about Sam's question? So this is from Sam, P-A-T-E-T. I'm going to mm-hmm. say pate, patet. Mm-hmm. If it's pate, Sam, I will make an apology <laughs> on the air. I'm going to say patet. 
Forgive okay. me, Sam. Yeah. Um, thoughts on why Walker Percy might have referred to Lonnie as a moviegoer, uh, given the other moviegoers in the books, like Banks and the Romantic on the Bus, who seem to be more despairing and confused than Lonnie is. I had the same question with Sam. I had this exact same question. I get that Banks is a moviegoer. Uh, I get that he refers to the romantic on the bus as a moviegoer. I said earlier, the romantic on the train, on the bus, um, as a moviegoer. But why Lonnie? And I I don't know. Because he's still looking know. for God. Even after he believes in God, he's still looking for him, right? So am I. So are you. Like, but I, see, I think, yeah, yeah. The moviegoing is the whole, I, I think that the title works. If we are right, that there is a resolution to his malaise with the everydayness at the end of the novel, because his problem with going to the movies is that it ends in everydayness, Mm. right? So, Mm. but he keeps going anyway. And then his story, what we get of his story ends in everydayness too. And he presents it as some kind of solution. And it's tied to a sacramental image of him seeing the man going in on Ash Wednesday and getting the cross on his forehead. And so I think there's, like we said, it's an ambiguous ending. You could say that it's just, he just like caved in and accepted the malaise. And now he's like not even on a search anymore. Like you could make that case, but I don't believe it. (laughs) So I I think with Lonnie, the whole point is that Lonnie is still continuing to search even as he's dying. That's why I think there's so much emphasis on him going to confession still and still wanting to fast. He's participating in the sacraments. Like the the end of the search isn't conversion. The end of the search is God himself. And the whole point of conversion is that now you're walking closer towards God. So conversion isn't it's kind of like a wedding being the end of a story, right? Like that's not your marriage. It's just your wedding. Yeah. And then after your marriage, you continue. Now you've begun the journey of being in love. The wedding yeah, is the I, beginning, not the end. And so Lonnie can still be on a search even after he's converted. And I think he is. I don't know, Heidi. I don't take moviegoer the the name moviegoer as okay let me say what i think it is yeah, i no, think that please. it includes the search as you're saying but i also think that in some ways it is a um a moviegoer is engaged on a search which is to his credit but it's a false search to his detriment and let me defend that i think that Banks and the Romantic on the Bus are both on a search in some way. They're both kind of like opting out of the mainstream. And yet they're engaged in sort of mainstream modes of the search. And I think Banks in some way, I think Banks is dissatisfied with the solutions that the movies give him repeatedly, that the main character quote, lives happily ever after. Um, and I think that's part of his, he feels that the movies sort of offer the first mile in a search, but then they are stunted. They come to um, an end that he does not find 
really a reward to this for like this deep existential need that he has. If that's true, what I just said, if that's what movie going is in the book, that's why I can't, I can't reconcile that with Lonnie. Because I don't think that Lonnie is on any sort of false, false search. search. I think Agreed. he's on a legitimate search. Mm-hmm. So maybe like, I mean, you've kind of laid out your vision of what movie going represents in the book. I've laid out my vision of what movie going um, represents in the book. And if you kind of accept yours, then yeah, it makes sense to call Lonnie a moviegoer. And to your point, Lonnie is called a moviegoer by the author of the book. So like, you've got a pretty strong, um, you've got an authoritative case in some way. Um, if you agree with me that movie going is kind of like an attempt toward the search that's necessarily going to be stunted and it's not going to be rewarded in some way, then it doesn't make sense to call Lonnie a moviegoer. Um, so that's, I, I don't Unless know. Unless Lonnie isn't the positive figure in the story that you and I are claiming that he is. Mm. I, I think you'd be harder pressed to make that case. Um, me too. But, I agree. Uh, but, you know, you could try. <laughs> Please discuss, says Megan Armstrong, the black characters in this book. Also, is it important that the man attending Ash Wednesday's service, so like in the very, the kind of like last scene before the epilogue, is black? I have big opinions on this, but I'll hold them for now. Piggybacking on that, Ilya, I'm going to say Danner Grubb says, how would you address the racism in the book? I know that it was part of the culture of the time, and I'm not a fan of censoring books that have problematic elements, but I think it's important to help students deal with those elements instead of ignoring them or brushing them aside and just saying, that's just how it was back then. So how would you address this book um, with students? This is a big one, Heidi. This is a big like question. Um, I'm going to start. Yeah, please. I have to. It, so first off, I want to agree with Ilya Danner Grubbs. Um, teaching this book, you know, if a student, you know, is like, man, there seems like there's a lot of race, you know, racist elements in this book. I don't think the answer is to say that's just how it was back then. Agreed. It's true. That's just how it was back then. I don't just, I don't think that's a satisfying answer for anybody. I think it's just a way of, I think Ilya's right. It's just a way of kind of like dismissing the question and saying, oh, we don't like to talk about things like that. Um, so I think it needs to be addressed. Okay. Now the big question is, um, are there racist elements in this book? Is this book, is our author um, in some ways kind of like racist in some subtle ways I have to admit, I didn't, like, I didn't read the book that way. I'll admit, I'm a big Walker Percy fan, and no one likes to have their literary heroes um, you know, have dirt underneath their nails. So that's part of the reason why I might not have seen it. So I've been thinking about this question since I read it. And here's, I'm just going to try to like say out loud where I think the problematic places might be. And I hopefully, please, Megan, please, Ilya, if you're listening to this, pulling out your hair, oh my gosh, Tim, how could you be so blind? I'm asking for um, a little bit of gentleness because I might just be blind about it. Okay. So what are the things in the book that could be understood as racist? Okay. I thought, well, 
um, the narrator describes negresses and negroes, like, ooh, those words kind of sound, they're kind of jarring. Uh, I, I don't think that's enough to make a charge of racism. I think African-Americans in 1961 were also referring, were using the word negress and negro. So I, I honestly just think that's kind of like a chronological issue, not a racist issue. So the another thing that I thought of was our narrator or our author um, there are certain, okay, there's two things. The, the characters who are black that show up in the narrative of the book tend to be servants in Miss Emily, excuse me, in Aunt Emily's house, right? Or they're some sort of, they're day laborers. And so maybe there's a complaint that, man, the only kind of vision of African-Americans that we see in the book are low-placed African-Americans. Maybe this is like a silent endorsement of a kind of racial caste system that exists in the Southeast, specifically in New Orleans. And so to that, I would say, well, I, I struggle with that because this is the kind of like reality on the streets in New Orleans. So I went back and I looked at demographics of New Orleans from 1960. So it's like, we're doing a really deep dive here, Heidi. I hope that's okay. About 40% of um, occupants of New Orleans are African-American at the time. The other 60% are going to be almost entirely white. Okay. So it's a pretty demographically, it's a fairly balanced 40 to 60 um, city. The main shopping avenue in New Orleans is Canal Street. Secondarily, there's another big street called Dryad Street. And I ran by Brandon, that is the correct pronunciation, Dryad Street. Um, The main shoppers on Canal Street and on Dryad Street were African-American. And almost all of the shops on Dryad Street and Canal Street were white shop owners. So right there, I think you've got a little kind of... um, a picture of maybe the old South caste system that the means of production and the wealth of a city are occupied in white hands, even though um, a large portion of the, or a large percentage of the populace is African-Americans and African-Americans could not own they did not have those doors open to them so that they could own shops, own the means of production, et cetera, et cetera. So, is Walker Percy by highlighting those that that African-Americans only kind of exist on one sphere of the societal plane, is that racist? For me, it's like, that's the way that New Orleans was. Okay, so can the book be charged by, can the book be charged as racist that Percy does not object to it in any way? Um. Maybe so. Maybe so. Maybe silence is an endorsement. I'm a little bit suspicious of that. I, I mean, maybe that's white privilege speaking, but I'm a little bit suspicious that um, not naming it is somehow endorsing it. I don't think that Walker Percy's background um, gives any indication that he 
was a racist in practice or that he somehow endorsed kind of like the systemic situation that he was in. So I'm a little bit reluctant to do that. So here's the third possible charge of racism. Some of the descriptions in the book um, draw African-Americans, they highlight certain features of African-Americans that might denote them as other. I'm thinking of, he was describing that one, a black man's hands, and he describes um, the palms of his hands as being the color of shrimp. Do you remember this, Heidi? I couldn't find the page number, but I, I felt confident it was there. So maybe there's some way in which Walker Percy's description of African-Americans, just like physical features, um, is kind of othering. It's, it's kind of drawing this distinction from between white people and black people, and Percy shouldn't um, highlight that. I, I, I can understand that being an uncomfortable thing. I don't think that Percy, though, is highlighting kind of like features that are oftentimes caricatured by whites. I didn't see him doing that in the book. Um, so I read those descriptions as being um, part of his descriptive capacity um, and not necessarily othering African-Americans. It was more he's just making an attempt to do what he does throughout the book, notice things as they appear to him and giving apt descriptions of them. That's how I read it. Now, again, Megan and Ilya might be saying like, Tim, you missed the whole thing. It's right here. And if I did, honestly, Megan, Ilya, please like contact me on Facebook and correct my ways. But uh, that's kind of how I read it, Heidi. Tell me what I'm missing. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily think you're missing anything. I think what has happened since his time in ours is a radical redefinition of the, of, of racism. Mm. So everything you're describing would nowadays be considered racist, right? So if, if there's a certain way of thinking, cultural way of thinking of, of, of black Americans, that there's a certain kind of that, I mean, and, and that, that that's true in the South, it's true to this day. Like, so there's, that is in itself then institutionalized racism mm. that, right. And that, that Binks then is in every way. And I think this is true. According to our definition of white privilege, um, he is the poster child for right. it. Right. Right. So the way that he thinks and talks about, say, you mentioned the servants in 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 his aunt's house, right? Like the modern is going to look and say, just the fact that that exists in a novel and that we're willing to pick it up and read it is a racist act mm. because it furthers then the stereotype, this institutionalized stereotype that in a wealthy white home in the South there would be black servants, and we shouldn't even be entertaining that thought anymore. Mm. We should be we we need to be cutting that kind of literature those kinds of stories out from the american mind so that in no way can we then read this book and be corrupted into making excuses for institutionalized racism yeah. so the you are 
the arguments that you have advanced are from a very old system of looking at what racism is, whereas now we have a new one. Mm-hmm. And 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 whether or not we should challenge that, agree with that, you know, might be beyond the scope of the discussion today. But according to our new version of racism, this book is super racist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So in that, and 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 if that is what we're dealing with when talking to students, I think Ilya is bringing up a really important point. How do we talk about that with students who are reading this and who do, rightly or wrongly, look at racism now through those eyes? Mm-hmm. And how do we address that? Do we say, yeah, this is a racist book because now we accept then the new version of racism? Or do we try to challenge that and try to say, yeah, that, you know, that wasn't the way they thought about racism then. And so if we read, if we do believe in reading books on their own terms, then that's how we lead the discussion. And say more about what you mean, Heidi, reading books on their own terms. Can you? Yeah, yeah. we talk about that. That's a great question. And, and, and I think this is how I would, this is how I would teach it. I think, I think, but I'd probably have to be more, uh, I'd have to think long and hard about it because I haven't taught a book like this in a high school class in the new America. (laughs) Um, So, uh, but one thing that we do talk about on on the show quite a lot is that in reading somebody like, say, Shakespeare, Shakespeare's a great, you know, kind of non-confrontational example of this. Uh, when we read Shakespeare and say we read about, oh, I don't know, um, Prospero mm-hmm. um, in um, what? In The Tempest. Yeah, in the Tempest. Thank you. Like totally blanked there. <laughs> we're talking about Prospero in the Tempest. In order to understand his character, we have to understand a bit about what was going on in Elizabethan culture at the time mm. and how they might have uh, thought of magicians, say, right? Yeah. And then you can say uh, they actually did believe in magic back then. Um, and there's this famous magician who was practicing at the time and had just gotten in trouble with the law. And there's a lot of questions about that. And then Prospero was written. Mm. So it kind of takes this play and puts it into a historical context. And in that way, then we're reading the play on Shakespeare's terms. And then once we have a solid footing in that, then and only then can we start bringing in our modern way of thinking about, say, like magical beings, right? Right. And, and I think that's a solid way to read a novel. Rather than beginning with our own constructs, we begin with the constructs of the author and of the time period in which it was written. And then from there, we can launch out on then critical commentary. And I think if I were teaching this book, that's where I would start. Um, and, and I think specifically for something as emotional and volatile and incendiary as the question of racism, it's even more important to help students displace that and to say there have been other, there have been throughout history, almost all of history until like a decade ago, a different understanding of what, of race mm. and of racism. And so, and, and it kind of, help students displace their emotion from the subject to be able to talk about it in a contextualized and historical sense, I think is really, really important, uh, especially in a classical classroom. Um, and and then from there, I think it's perfectly fine then to put our own our own judgments on there, our own moral judgments and say, I, I don't think that he, Percy was right mm. to, to write Black characters like this. I think he should have thought more critically about it. Or to say... You know, 
exactly what you said. I don't, I don't think you can level a charge of racism against Walker Percy, considering the culture in which he was embedded. And so I think that, the, but those critical conversations are perfectly valid and important, I think, in this novel, but they need to be grounded in a better understanding of the world at the time before they begin. It's fair to say Binks is a racist. It's fair to say Binks is a sexist. I think those are like pretty legitimate Givens. claims. I think I just find it really difficult to charge our author who's seemingly deliberately drawing his main character in these ways as sharing his main character's point of view. That is, that's not true. I don't think that Walker Percy, he might have had an affinity toward the same things that Binks does. Maybe he did. Like he, he knows Binks so deeply from the inside that perhaps he did. But I don't think that he, uh, that we can charge Walker Percy with being a racist because he, or being a sexist because he drew a sexist character. I mean, I just think that's like, I think you're kind of like, <laughs> at that point you stop, you're not really reading literature at that point you're right. reading everything is autobiography. Right. Abs- well, and I mean, <laughs> to your point is exactly right. That's the, you know, absolute ever loving, crazy nature of our self-righteous public square, right? Like we have completely redefined what it means to think and feel about anything. And now we just have to fall in line with that um, or else we are playing identity politics and so uh and and that is but this is exactly the kind of book that um that will be charged with with rampant institutionalized racism within the public square and i think as thoughtful christian readers it it behooves us to start to your point to start asking questions about how then ought we to read in a public square that is that that has accepted this kind of new version or of of what racism is mm. and and we do have to talk about that as we do have to talk about that a lot um and you know what i want to do often is throw up my hands and say this is just so irrational right but but it's happening. Mm. And so it does behoove us. I really like the word behoove to, <laughs> to say, okay, if we see something really good in this book, and yet we know there's going to be a charge of racism leveled against it and potentially by our own students and their families and, um, you know, people who are deciding reading lists and book lists uh, in schools, you know, how ought we then to to meet that charge in order to defend the book and then also to use the book as a platform for having some of these conversations that are happening, whether we want them to happen or not. And, and, and I think kind of starting with the idea of grounding it within its own culture and then raising the critical questions on behalf of our students um, is, is a worthwhile way to, um, to, you know, to, to begin to engage in some of these hard conversations about some of the books that we love. Heidi, next question. Uh, Gabrielle Doran. Tim and Heidi's lengthy discussion about this book's approach to the modern man made me wonder, why did this book win an award? Granted, I was not around in 1961, but if the intellectual establishment of the time was anything like it is today, 
what did reviewers see in this story? I know why it resonates with me, a Catholic, but I'd be interested in hearing more what the wider intellectual community saw in this book, other than the redemptive grace Binks might be tending toward on his search. I'll tackle this one first, Heidi. I'd love mm, to hear what you think please. after. Gabrielle, I don't think that this book should have won the 1961 book. <laughs> uh, that's coming from someone, as I said 10 that minutes ago, Walker I'm a Percy. big Walker Percy fan. This is not his best effort. And I don't think that this book is better than the rivals it was up against in 1961. Salinger's Franny and Zoe, Joseph Heller's Catch-22, Isaac Singer's The Spinoza of Market Street. So I don't think it should have won National Book Award. That being said, your question, Gabrielle, has been really... like. Before you asked it, I've been thinking to myself, why did this book win? Because it says something about the award committee that they selected this book. And it must have, surely, touched something on the panel that was deeply felt. I mean, I, I, I think this book is so much a, an artifact of its time. Every book is, but this is very much a book that like belongs in 1961. It does not belong in 1971. It doesn't belong in 1931. It's 1961. And I think that he got the pathos of 1961. That's, that's my best guess as to why this book won. Because I don't think its quality measures up to its rivals. So then it must have really articulated what it felt like to be on a search in 1961. That's my best guess. Heidi, do you have something? Well, I mean, my understanding of her question is if, if this is a book that challenges the uh, assumptions of modernity, why would modernity give it an award? Mm -hmm. Right. Like, so fair enough. It's a great question. Um, And I think that, that, you know, at least some of it, there's probably lots of reasons for it. One is that this is a very easy, like all of the, all of the great mid-century Catholic authors, uh, this is a very, this book is a giant risk uh, for a Catholic author to publish, which is one of the reasons why I love them so, so much is that they write these books with this, you know, there's no neat little bow at the end. There's ambiguity Mm. in the interpretation of these novels. And so I think that there's a lot of wrong readings of this novel and maybe we're the ones reading it wrong, except we share, we, and and that's fair too. Um, Or else maybe it's deliberately, and this is certainly true, deliberately ambiguous to give people a chance to kind of see themselves mirrored in the protagonist in the in the action of the story. Um, as I went back and read this week several um, articles um, that were not written by Christians, just to kind of get a feel for what the general, you know, kind of secular viewpoint on this novel was. And it's radically different from anything Tim and I have been saying on the podcast. How interesting, really. And so I I think that it's you know worth checking that out. And and so that I think in the 60s, that, that was, you know, the decade of when people were trying to write the great American novel, right? So um, that's when you have these long, like, epic length modern stories. Um, and there's this sense of um, 
this great optimism and vision for American letters. And, and so any kind of risk-taking novel got a lot of attention at the mm. time. Mm. And, and I think that this was one of those novels that was just so weird and so unexpected and um, had so many potential interpretations and it made people feel smart if they felt like they would kind of got it. Um, and so I think that that was part of the reason why it ended up winning the award. I'm sure there's a ton of politics behind the scenes that we have no idea about because there always isn't any kind of big award. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really good question that you're asking. And I had the same question of like, to me, it feels like such a critical question. Uh, there's so many accusations leveled against some of the assumptions of modernity, but at the same time, Binks is so troubled uh, that I think he has enough, um, you know, enough ambiguity in the trajectory of his story that then by the end, um, you have to kind of look hard and know what you're looking for if you are looking for a conversion. And I mm. think it's there, but it's very easy to overlook and just call this a novel about somebody who like tried really hard to find God and then didn't and then gave up and married the girl. Yeah. And yeah. and and in that case, that's the great American modern novel, right? <laughs> so Heidi Sarah Montgomery, one of our favorites, asks. Many have mentioned connections between this book and Brideshead Revisited and Catcher in the Rye. Why do I love Brideshead and really not love the other two or even The Power and the Glory? When we finished Brideshead, I truly loved it, but I feel very meh about ever reading this again. And Sarah Montgomery concludes by saying, this is a terrible Q&A question. <laughs> <laughs> So why does why does why do you think that Sarah likes Brideshead, does not like the moviegoer, does not like The Power and the Glory, does not like Catcher in the Rye, but we kind of tend to group all four of those novels together. Yeah, that's a, I mean, it's a really good question. I think that the protagonists of this novel are barely likable ever in the entire story. That's my pretty strong opinion about Banks and Kate. Um, and so I think that one of the things about Brideshead um, is, is how, oh man, he was, he was a British writer and we Americans love British stories. I think that's part, that's part of, that's, that's part of why we love Brideshead. So I mean, everybody knows that's my favorite novel too. Um, that, but the characters in that are so full. Like, they're so lovable. They are so, so lovable in Brideshead. Um, and in this story, they're just not. And I think that's a big deal. And I think that Walker Percy wrote unlikable characters on purpose. I don't think it's a flaw in the book. I think he did it on purpose, and I think it works for this novel. However, it's, again, it's a big risk for a novelist to take because if you don't like the characters, you're not invested in their search. Yeah. And um, and it and I think what, what Percy is doing is forcing us to see beyond the characters, forcing us to say, these modern people aren't very likable, and yet are they worth saving, right? Mm. And that's one of the questions of the novel. And the answer, of course, is yes, but it does in some ways take a divine, a more divine love than maybe many of us have <laughs> um, in order to get there in terms of being like, I just really loved this book and really loved these characters and wanted them to be redeemed. Um, whereas in a book like Brideshead, um, 
you do kind of feel that much more deeply. And then I think we bring our own assumptions to some of the other novels. Um, I, of course, love The Power and the Glory. Um, I love The End of the Affair. And I like Catcher in the Rye fine. So that is, um, and you love Catcher in the Rye. You know, like, and I think so much of it has to do with how we feel about the protagonists who yeah. are on this kind of bumpy journey, how much we relate to them, how much their sins are our sins, mm-hmm. how many, how much our sufferings are theirs and how much we share those. That's the thing that creates, I think, a sense of affinity for a character who's in a tough spot. Um, and, and in this particular novel, it takes a lot of work to like either of these characters and I think you did it on purpose and I think it works for the novel, but I, I don't think there's any shame in acknowledging that they're less likable than some of the other characters in some of these other stories and books that we've read. Ilya Danner Grubbs has another question that I'm going to combine with a question from Rebecca Straw Trudeau. Ilya asks, do you, what do you think about Kate's declaration that she is religious? She says it as if it was almost an epiphany and then nothing else seems to come of it. Rebecca also asks something similar. She says, um, I was surprised by your interpretation of the conclusion. My interpretation was that Binks decided to pursue beauty as a way of overcoming malaise because of how Kate asked him to think of her as she ran a simple errand. I pictured Kate and Binks needing each other to help the other escape their everydayness. And she also asked, I'm going to have to trim a little bit of Rebecca's question. Could you flesh out the moment of grace for Banks? How is the black man important to that moment? So Heidi, what do you think about Kate's declaration that she is religious? She says as if it's almost an epiphany and then nothing seems to come of it or does something seem to come of it in, you know, Ilya's kind of saying, did I, did I just miss it? I don't think we get a full picture into Kate's um, awakening. I think it's Binx's that we see. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I even think at the end of the novel, there's so much emphasis made in the epilogue on Binks encouraging Kate to go out on her own and take those papers to the lawyer. Um, and he tells her exactly where to go and how to carry the papers and everything, which is a, a, it's an example of what she asked him to do when they marry each other, right? She says, please just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And he agrees to that twice in the novel. Um, and then at the end, he tells her where to go and what to do with these papers and how to deliver them and all that stuff. And she's very nervous about stepping out on her own. Um, and I, I was grateful for that particular little episode at the end because I, <laughs> I thought that that whole request was kind of creepy. So, mm-hmm. um, it's not, like, I think that there's an emphasis then on the end that, um, that Banks is not just carrying Kate. She is on her own journey to becoming a healthy person and that he's encouraging her along the way, but that, um, but that she is a person in her own right that is being encouraged to grow. Um, and, so anyway, that I think relates to it because I don't think that we see Kate being completely redeemed in the context of this story. Yeah, it, I agree with you that the camera really does focus on Banks during the last chapter and a half. We kind of move away from Kate 
and it focuses almost exclusively on banks. So can we flesh out the moment of grace for banks? How is yeah, the black man important to that moment? Why don't you, why don't you give that a start? I, um, I think the moment of grace is not stark as it is mm-hmm. in Agreed. a Flannery O'Connor story. I mean, it's Flannery O'Connor stories gunshots go off, people get tattoos, you know, a boar, a, a, a bull gores somebody. This is the moment of grace. If you miss it, you, you haven't read the story. I think mm-hmm. Binks is subtle. And I think it's almost more, how do I say this? I don't think that Binks makes a decision as much as he like rounds a curve the way that one was in, does in a car. So you have to make a decision to make your car drive around a curve. Um, but it's not like slamming on the brakes, nor is it, you know, really punching the accelerator. I think that Banks is gradually rounding this curve in which his own malaise is so disheartening for him. All the ways in which Banks has tried to escape his malaise they're not working for him anymore. Movie going, you know, is not working for him anymore. Spending time with Sharon, spending time with other women is not going for him anymore. So I don't see him as experienced. He's not gored by a bull, a la Flannery O'Connor story, but he's gradually turning a corner and recognizing maybe like someone leaving Kierkegaard's aesthetic stage. The aesthetic means are failing him. They are no longer sources of joy and gratification. So what alternative does Binks have? Well, the religious life is beginning to open up to him in some way. So I think that the commentary at the end uh, about the black man after Ash Wednesday, has, has the black man gone to the church because he's had this profound moment of grace himself somewhere along the way? Or is church going just another thing that he's done with his life because his mom wanted him to do it because his dad wanted him to do it. And he's just never really changed his ways. And Binks seems to say, I don't know. I don't know. But it seems that God's grace is functional in both ways, in both stories. If there's this radical turning or if it's just sort of like part and parcel of a life that this man in the mercury has chosen, either way, God's grace is, is efficacious on both. Right. I think what he's challenging here, and this is why I I see this as a true conversion. Um, And this is something that the great Catholic writers keep coming back to again and again, because this, what I'm about to say, is foundational to the, the sacramental vision of the faith, which is profoundly different from a modern vision of the world, even modernity that's crept into the church. And that's this to a Catholic. I'm not Catholic, but I believe this to a Catholic, the grace that is given through the sacraments is not dependent on our attitude towards it. So if you get a cross on your forehead on Ash Wednesday, that cross is the sacrament of repentance, whether you feel it to the core of you or not. If you go up to receive the sacrament of the Eucharist and they put the body and blood of Christ or on your tongue, if they put as 
as Graham Greene says in The Power and the Glory, God in your mouth. That is God in your mouth, regardless of the state of your heart. Mm. Now, the modern world is more like Binks. What do I feel? What do I want? Do I, am I, am I getting, am I getting it? Right? Like they're the, the, (laughs) it's so experiential that somehow they feel like if I get a cross on my forehead and I don't feel repentant, then I haven't experienced the sacrament of repentance. Mm. Right? Mm. And the Catholic vision of reality is the opposite of that. The Catholic vision of reality says whether that man who came and got a cross on his forehead is doing it out of some kind of profound repentance or because it's just part and parcel of his everyday life, whether it's out of the everydayness, he still got the repentance. He still got the cross on his forehead. Now, the cross on your forehead is not actually a sacrament, um, but it is evidence of the sacrament. Right. And so that is that is the antidote to the modern, uh, at least in the mind of these Catholic authors, this is the antidote to the modern problem of what about the way I feel. Yeah. Yeah. And that has come, <laughs> I'm about to indict here. That has come into the church even now. Hmm. People saying things like, you know, well, you know, it's really whether your heart believes or feels it's really based on how you feel and what what you get out of church right and that is not at all the sacramental vision of church that is not at all the sacramental vision for worship the sacramental vision for worship is that you go in and if you receive the eucharist you took god in your mouth whether you meant it that way or not the sacrament is objective you are subjective mm. and that is in the mind of these Catholic authors, that's the vision that they're giving. And like, so, so to them, what could be more redemptive of Binks's self-absorbed, unattractive journey to God than seeing a man out of everydayness receive the sacrament on his body? And to not really see any evidence that it's had a huge emotional... Exactly. It, it's accompanied with a huge emotional punch. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. He's saying this is the antidote. This is the thing the modern world doesn't know it needs. And so to see someone receive that is in many ways the ultimate kind of redemption. Now, yeah. again, getting a cross on your forehead is, an, is, is not considered a sacrament. Um, but getting a cross on your forehead is a picture of an objective correlative to the uh, the the, uh, you know, experience, experience to the reality of confession and repentance in your soul. Okay. Yeah. And in between the time you get the, in between Ash Wednesday and, uh, and all through Lent, Ash Wednesday is the first day of Lent. Um, in between Ash Wednesday and Lent, uh, people do go in for the sacrament of confession before they receive then the Eucharist on Easter morning, which is the end of Lent. Our penultimate question is from Ben Whetstone, Heidi, and it includes an invitation to physical combat, as I mentioned at the top of the show. (laughs) Ben writes, let's wrestle, W-R-A-S-S-L-E. Let's wrestle with the conversion experience of the book's last chapter. Binks has already rejected Aunt Aunt Emily's way of seeing the world and clearly isn't going to inhabit that world. 
the actual conversion is on the surface so lightweight and thin. We assume that Binks, in the process of the complex business of coming up in the world, receives God's own importunate bonus. But convince me, says Ben, that the ending is well-written, that the last few sentences hold the power to resolve five chapters of despair. My position is that it's written so perfunctorily that an epilogue is needed. Otherwise, what reason would we have of believing that so airy a grace could take hold? I agree with Ben. I agree with Ben. With the caveat being, I think what you just said in answer to uh, Rebecca and Ilya's question, that the sacramental vision of that the sacramental vision has taken a hold in some way over banks. Okay. So I'm going to grant that, but I think Heidi, um, as a literary, just as a literary question, I think that Ben's complaint is legitimate. Convince me that the ending is well-written that the last few sentences hold the power to resolve five chapters of despair. For me, when I read um, Crime and Punishment, 400 chapters, 400 pages of despair, the, res- the resolution to those 400 pages is so satisfying to me. Um, I don't feel like the resolution, the redemption of Raskolnikov is thin in any way. I do Before the epilogue? No, no, no. I think the epilogue is important, but I don't think the epilogue is just sort of like a tie-on. I think that in Crime and Punishment, I think that Ben is saying, look, the book kind of ends and it's not strong enough. And the author knew it wasn't strong enough to really end the book. So he had to write an epilogue. I don't think that's what was going on with Dostoevsky. I think Dostoevsky was like, yep, epilogue's part of like the main story that I'm telling. I'm going to label it an epilogue, but like it's, it's part of the main thrust. Um, I think that the story, the conclusion is kind of thin. And I, and again, not to go like, I I feel like I'm cheating because I'm saying this is not his best book. I actually think it might be his weakest novel. And I think the thing that shows up in Walker Percy's other novels that's so powerful is that our main character almost in every novel arrives at a place where a decision must be made he knows the stakes of that decision. And we as a reader often aren't sure what decision he's going to make, but we know what the stakes are for each of these decisions. I think The Last, the last Gentleman, which is the book after this one, ends in just such a moment. Our main character is going to either leap into faith or he's going to follow this kind of quasi doctor into just like, I'm going to live a life of pleasure and meaninglessness. I know what the, what the geography of these two choices are. I got to choose one. And I find that even though in some ways it might feel a little bit like, like an abortive ending, I don't think it is. And for me, it's much more satisfying on a literary scale than is um, the conclusion of this book, even though theologically, I think I have more in common with, um, where Binks is at the end of this book. I don't find it literarily as satisfying as some of Percy's other novels. Hmm. 
I've only ever read Love in the Ruins, which I thought the ending was brilliant. Um, and it's a different novel. It's a very different novel than this. It has a very different feel to it. Um, I, I don't think he's... I don't, I don't know if I think Ben's wrong either, but I think we have to ask ourselves the question, what is it that we want to see, right? One of the reasons this novel is so enduring is because it doesn't tie everything up in some like neat little bow. And so mm-hmm. there, there's a deliberate ambiguity at the end of it. I think that's less, um, I, I think that the epilogue takes us deeper into um, an understanding of that moment um, that he sees. If the novel ends right there, I actually think it would be stronger than with the epilogue. Oh, really? So huh. in a literary sense, because there's an ambiguity there that I think that the uh, is a solid literary choice for a modern novel. Um, but if we're asking for a resolution to the despair, then it's a very dissatisfying ending. Because it's not strong enough, right? But is that the goal of the ending of a modern novel, a resolution of despair? That's in many you know, ways that's no. going to be more satisfying for the Christian who wants to know what happens to this guy on the search for God. Of course, mm. we want more, right? We want to know he got to God, right? Which I think we find in the epilogue, which maybe actually dispels the greatness of the novel because mm. maybe it should have ended with just that ambiguity um so i'm i'm on the fence on this i think that if you're talking philosophically and religiously satisfying no we need the epilogue if we're talking about like in a literary sense how it does may this have been stronger without end, like it think it might be stronger without yeah. it and i think it's stronger with the ambiguity last question heidi from sarah ewan I thought the ending Sally. was hopeful. It's Sally. You sorry, I'm sorry. What did I say? That's all right. You said Sarah, but that's okay. Sally, it's not we know Sarah. you. Sarah? Yeah, it's okay. Sorry, my apologies. Goodness. I thought the ending was hopeful, says Sally. That Binks is finding fulfillment in the Nailed role it. of leader, provider, protector of Kate. My friend thought the ending was the two of them enabling each other to continue to be messed up. <laughs> like, that's pretty legit. Um, is it okay for two people to come away with such disparate views of a novel? I'd like to tackle this one first, Heidi. Please. Uh, Sally, the answer is no, it's not okay. So one of <laughs> lies, like figure it out. Like one of you, like your friendship is at stake. You either get it right on this one or no. That's a web of yeah, lies. Sally. I think, I, I mean, to him. I, sometimes I, I'm sure that you're this way, Heidi. Sometimes I get to the end of a book and I'll talk to a friend of mine and they'll see it in a different way. And I will like the moviegoer search. Yeah. But not, not a movie. I'm not thinking of books like the moviegoer. I think the moviegoer is, it is a book ripe for interpretation. But I think if someone I'll use, Crime and Punishment again, because I just mentioned it. If someone came away from Crime and Punishment and said, uh, Raskolnikov, the moral of the book is that Raskolnikov learned that he just wasn't really strong enough to be an ubermensch. And like, there's no mention of um, redemption and of kind of like an inner melting of the heart, a softening of the heart, you know. 
I would want to wrestle about that. I mean, I would like, you know, I was like, no, that's an unacceptable interpretation of this book. The book is so clear. It's so forceful in its conclusion. You've got to come to my side. Um, so I'm a little bit guilty of actually answering Sally's question in the negative. No, it's not okay. Sometimes you can't have disparate views of some novels. Um, but I think this is definitely a book that lends itself to a variety of different interpretations. And I don't know, <laughs> to be totally honest, I don't know that that is actually an endorsement of the book. I, I don't know that it's deliberately uh, that way. Um, I don't know that his ambiguity was pre-planned. Sometimes in my kind of worst moments, I'm like, Walker, it's just not your best effort. It was your first effort. It is not your best effort. And part of the ambiguity of the ending is that it wasn't your best effort. Heidi, what do you think? Uh, is it okay for people to come away with such disparate views of a novel? Absolutely. That's what's fun about novels. That's what's fun about good novels. Uh, but a lot of times we don't know that until we start reading with other people and talking mm -hmm. about it with those people. And I think that that's uh, what happened with you and your friend. And I, that's why I believe in reading books in community, especially hard books. The harder the book, the more ambiguous the book, the better to read in community. Um, because then you get lots of great questions. Like, you know, should Odysseus have told Polyphemus's name? Should, you know, like these big questions that we think we know the answers to is, you know, were Kathy and Heathcliff really in love? Or yeah. like all these great questions about novels that, um, that, that then you look at this and you say, we're Binks and Kate, it, are they ever going to have a good marriage? Yeah. Right. Right. So that's, I mean, I'm, I'm with your friend. I think they have a really dysfunctional relationship, Yeah. but that doesn't mean they can't be on the search together. It doesn't mean they can't find God together. It doesn't mean they can't be saved. There's, there's this, that's what's so great, I think, about the modern novels is they have this like very deep pathos and humanity to them. And the authors aren't afraid to let their, their characters suffer without like fixing it for them by the end of the book. And I think that takes some courage um, to do. I'm not sure I could write a book in which, I mean, truly, I think I would love my characters so much that to leave them in the end still and, you know, a, a, a dilemma like this would be hard for me to yeah. do. I would want to fix it for them. Um, but the modern novelists in general, let us interpret, they take that risk with us. And I think that's part of reading. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's no right answer. I always tell my students, if you could defend it from the text, it's valid. If it goes against the text, it's not valid. And either one of the, uh, the endings that you posited, you and your friend, Sally, are both defendable from the I text. I think so too. Totally agree. Totally agree. Heidi, congratulations. We have just surmounted the mountaintop that is Walker Percy's The Movie Goer. The Movie Goer. Well done. Well <laughs> done. Um, I want to tell our listeners that we have an exciting book coming up. We will begin recording next week. Death Comes to the Archbishop by Willa Cather. I love this novel. It's a I wonderful love novel. This book. It's a I wonderful, wonderful novel. I can't wait to have David back. Also, David will be joining us, Heidi, after a brief hiatus to tend to his 
newborn bookstore, which uh, I talked to David yesterday on the phone, the bookstore is doing very well, like financially, you know, this is a hard time to start a bookstore. It's a hard time to start anything, especially a bookstore. But David said that he and Bethany have been really happy by kind of the early returns. So he's not feeling kind of economic anxiety that he could very easily be feeling if um, things had not gone in the right direction. So keep so. up the support, close readers. Absolutely keep up right. the support. If you and want Tim, to- I want to yeah. think- Thank you for taking the lead on these podcasts. You oh, it's been my pleasure. It's been so great to come back to uh, Walker Percy. I never left him, but I probably haven't read a Walker Percy book in probably seven years after reading everything that the man has written. And so, boy, it does feel like kind of shaking a hand's friend. Not that I would do that during COVID times. I wouldn't shake hands. <laughs> I would do an elbow bump with Walker Percy. But That's right. It was really, it'd be, you know, it was nice to do an elbow bump with Walker Percy. Hey, um, our questions and answers today came from the Close Reads Facebook page. If you ever have a question and you would like to get in touch with us, be it for the Q&A episode or not, that's the best way to do it. Um, log on and join the Close Reads Facebook page, and it's a great, easy way to get in touch with us. Um, Heidi, any closing thoughts about the moviegoer or about, um, life hopefully in the tail end of the COVID era? Oh man. Anything like that From your lips to God's ears, this week, um, I just want to say yeah. like for people who are listening to this episode late, this is the week that we saw the first vaccines, you know, people receiving the first vaccines the, the vice president received a vaccine. Um, so I, I like, we both like to kind of like include little time capsule things because people sometimes listen to these a year or two years after we recorded them. So to our late listeners, that is where we are the recording of these episodes. Yeah, I, I do have, I guess, a final thought. And that's that out of all of the modern novels the 20th century Catholic novels that we, you know, we know and love so much here on the Close Reads podcast. Uh, This has been my least favorite one, Mm. um, just in terms of preference. But I have so loved coming to Walker Percy. I'm going to ask you, I've read Love in the Ruins. I really liked that. And I'm, I'm going to Hawaii the week after Christmas as long as we can pass a rapid COVID test. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want I want to read some more Walker Percy. So what's the next one that I should read, Tim? Give me a recommendation. Okay, my favorite is Lancelot. Okay. This is last novel. That's my favorite. Okay. I don't know that that's the one I'm going to recommend. It's, it's oh. dark. Uh, dark with a okay. capital K. Uh, I'm going to recommend <laughs> Just the last gentleman. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I think that's the one. I think, I think it's a better novel than this. I, I do think that Lancelot is his best, but yeah, I don't know. That's, I don't know. That's the one you want to read in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. I'm looking out for you, Heidi. I know. I appreciate that. I don't need, I don't, I don't need more darkness. If you do but, read it, like I'm sure that all of our listeners uh-huh. are very curious to hear yep. about it. And I'm really hoping you'll all tune in to Death Comes uh, for the Archbishop starting next week. And David will be back for that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, thanks again, listeners, so much for your support and for your attention. We do not take it for granted, I can assure you. We're really grateful. We hope that everybody is staying well, taking proper precautions, um, and that you get to enjoy your Christmas holidays and that they're safe and merry. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thanks again for joining us. And as always, happy reading. <laughs>